For what do I have If I don't have you, Jesus What in this life Could mean anymore You are my rock You are my glory You are the lifter of my head Hi, and welcome to The Rock's Podcast. Jesus often used parables, a story within a story, to illustrate spiritual truths so that those who were sincerely open to a relationship with God could understand and respond with faith. Let's join Pastor Carlin now as he leads us through a series on the parables of Jesus. Welcome you back to your seats so we can begin. So uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Pastor Carlin. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Pastor Ross, our lead pastor, uh, is teaching through Romans on Sunday. And man, I'm really enjoying that study. Romans is such an incredible book. I'd encourage you to listen to that if you jumped in halfway. Uh, go back on the, the podcast or the app and look up those messages and walk through Romans with us. Really incredible book. So we've been going through, on Wednesday nights, Matthew 13. Matthew 13 takes place uh, about midway through Jesus' ministry and... Uh, and so we're gonna look at some parables. We're getting towards the end of Matthew 13, and tonight we're gonna to be in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. We're gonna be looking at the pearl of great price and the hidden treasure. So while you're making your way there in your Bible so you can follow along, uh, we'll take a moment, and I'm gonna ask the Lord for his grace uh, before we begin. So Heavenly Father, we do just look to you for grace right now, God. Lord, this is your God-breathed word. Speak to us through your word. Pray that you would illuminate your word to us tonight. Make things clear. Press in, Lord. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement, Lord. Strengthen us through your word. Wash us by your word tonight, God, that we might be uh, pure followers of you, God, because of what you've done for us and what you've offered to us, and your Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. So we look to you now, God, and we'll give preeminence to your word, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, I will read that to you. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So we're gonna focus on a major theme here. And here's the theme of these two parables. Though they're separate, they have the same point. The point is uh, the immense value of the kingdom. The immense value of the kingdom is the theme. The two points we'll look at in each parable, number one will be the find, and number two will be the cost. The find and the cost. So let's review a little bit uh, so we can get our context here. So here's what's happened. Jesus has appeared as savior of the world. He's the Jewish Messiah, and he's the, the Messiah for everyone that would come to him. Now he came but his own people rejected him. And we saw that uh, the people started rejecting him. We saw that the religious leaders started rejecting him. We saw that they were interested in his stuff 
and in the hype and the miracles and the crowds. They were interested in that, but they weren't interested in him. So uh, he starts uh, really taking steps of judgment against them and starts withdrawing knowledge to them. And we see that first action here uh, with parables. So Matthew 12 lists several things that happen. And it says that same day, uh, Jesus goes out and he starts speaking to the crowd in parables. When the disciples say, why are you doing this? He says, because it has been hidden from them. And he prophesies, gives a prophecy from Isaiah chapter, uh, I believe it's six. And he says that, uh, look, it's being hidden from them because the hardness of their heart, they are not interested in me. And so they're not gonna get more knowledge. The little knowledge they do have is gonna now be confused and taken from them because they're not interested in me. And on the other side, parables are designed to reveal further knowledge to those who are interested in the Lord and are coming and receiving him. So mysteries hidden from the foundation of the world are being revealed in front of everybody, but the only people who can understand them are the disciples and those close followers of Jesus who Jesus explains the parables to afterwards. And it says the crowds he didn't talk to except in parables. And so there came the first form of judgment against the crowds. Now he's explaining that there's gonna be a new form to the kingdom of heaven. The Old Testament understanding, the Jewish understanding of the time was that the kingdom was gonna come uh, immediately in glory when the Messiah appeared. It was gonna be apocalyptic. Everyone would see it, huge. There's been no missing it. Evil would be dealt with. Uh, goodness and justice would be brought in and they would rejoice because they'd forever be with the king of heaven and there'd be uh, no more wars or all these things would be done. They wouldn't be trampled on by their enemies. Uh, and so they were looking forward to that. But because they rejected their Messiah, Christ is showing them there's a new form of the kingdom that's gonna take place this era between when he appeared and they rejected him until when he appears again uh, and we're called to him. And so we see the age of the church coming and he has to explain this to them. There's this new form of the kingdom that it's coming, it's come now uh, spiritually, but it, the physical part of the kingdom will come later when he brings in the kingdom, when he, he appears. And so uh, we looked at some parables. The first parable was a parable of the sower. And we see from that that there's different heart responses to the message of the kingdom. Jesus explained that one to his disciples and to us. You can find the explanation there in the scripture in Matthew 13. Next, he gave the parable of the tares. And he explained that believers and unbelievers would be living together here on the earth until the new kingdom came. But temporarily, there was still gonna be evil in the world. And this was foreign to the idea of the Jews with the concept of the kingdom. He explained that one as well to the disciples. Now, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven we discussed uh, last time. And he, this is the first parable he didn't explain uh, to us in scripture. We don't have that recorded. We do know that he explained all of these parables to the disciples. So we can go off of how he originally uh, presented the explanations for the first two. We can see the one main point. We discussed that last week, and that was uh, the small beginnings of the kingdom and then the immense growth of the kingdom. 
And now today we're gonna focus on the value of the kingdom, two short parables that are gonna show us the importance and the great value of the kingdom of heaven. How much is it really worth? So let's read verse 44 together and we'll look at point one, the find. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now it's important that you realize it's not saying that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure, but it's that whole situation. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Again, this concept would be foreign to the, uh, the minds of the, the Jews back then because this idea that the kingdom of heaven is hidden at all is shocking to them. How can you hide the kingdom of heaven, something so great and magnificent? How can it be hidden somewhere? And, and uh, here this guy is in a field and he's going to stumble upon it. Uh, they're thinking revelation before revelation was, was written. They're thinking this prophecy in Daniel that, you know, here comes the king, here comes God himself. Uh, you know, so the idea that it's hidden, very, very important to see that in this first part of the parable. This man is going to discover the kingdom accidentally. This man is not looking for treasure. This man finds hidden treasure in a field that wasn't his own. And uh, very uncommon, if we talk about Jewish history, it's very uncommon for people to be digging around in other people's property back then. Uh, it's serious, it's not like today where you, you know, there's these idea of public land and all of that. Uh, people's property was people's property. And so you weren't allowed to go around and dig for treasure on their property. So this man more than likely is not some treasure hunter. He's a laborer or a worker. He might also be uh, someone who's leasing the land. That happened back then. So maybe he's just working the land or he's digging something uh, for a different purpose. And he stumbles upon this treasure. Now, this actually happened. So Jesus isn't pulling uh, some random mythical example. He's pulling something that actually would occur back then. And so uh, in Jewish, in Israel history, uh, they were constantly invaded. If you look at the period of time between uh, the Old Testament and New Testament, the Maccabean period, you see that there's these wars one after another and Israel's like right in the middle and they get trampled on from down below because the, the lower countries go to attack the top countries and they just cross right through Israel and every time they pass through, they just destroy it. And so they didn't have banks back then in the measure that we think of them. They didn't have safety deposit boxes. There was no FDIC. And so what did they do when they had treasure? Where did they put it? They would bury it and hide it. Now, we actually have records of this from Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of the time. And he talked about uh, how when, when in AD 70, when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, he talked about people burying treasures in the field or in the ground. Uh, and that was one of the ideas, hey, let's bury it. They're gonna come in and destroy the city and they might stay, they might not, who knows, but we can come back later and dig up our treasure. And if they find us this way, they're not gonna find anything on us that's a value and maybe they won't kill us. Uh, and so the idea was there, the, this thing was, was buried. It was hidden in the field. This actually happened. This was a way of saving uh, your treasure. Um, now, uh, there's another piece of evidence towards this that this actually happened. It was discovered in Qumran along with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so there's something called 
the copper scroll that was discovered. We have a picture of it for you. And it was a rolled up sheet of copper that had writing on it. And it dated from the time somewhere between 50 AD all the way until 135 AD, they estimated. But somewhere in there, they said this, this was dated. And what was on here wasn't some Bible text, but it was actually instructions to find buried treasure. And so there's apparently multiple spots. Uh, the, when they unrolled this scroll, they had to cut it actually in sections. They couldn't unroll it without breaking it. So they cut it in sections, which you see there. And they went and looked at the spots and there was no treasure there. So they either already returned to get it or it was some type of a ploy. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it was common. It was something that they would do uh, a lot. That's where you would bury things as you would bury things in the ground. Now this man happens to stumble upon it and he discovers the worth, but he doesn't own the field. And so uh, what does he do? He sells everything he owns and he buys the land. Now, right away, some of you might be thinking, is that the ethical or legal thing to do, right? You stumble upon some treasure in some guy's field and then you, you, know, you cover it back up and then you go up and you, know, you get money and you buy the field and the guy has no idea. Is that ethical and is that legal? Those are the two questions we have. And so uh, let's discuss those before we go any further, even though that's not the moral of this entire story, but sometimes we can't get over things and so it'll distract us from the entire point of the story. So here we go, let's discuss this. John MacArthur does a wonderful job breaking this down simply. He goes, number one, Jews had very specific rules for discovering treasure or found possessions, okay? So what he did was not against Jewish law. Now, there's some points in the, Mish the Mishnah or Talmud, the oral tradition that was written down of that time. There's some points to talk about really specifically. Uh, if you pull the treasure out, then it belongs to the owner. But if you leave it buried, it's... It's, uh, it doesn't belong to the owner. It's very complicated, okay? So uh, the point, the big point here is that number one, according to Jewish law, there was no issue with him uh, finding it. It literally was finders keepers. If you found it, it belonged to you, okay? Um, and uh, obviously it did because Jesus uses this example and there's no confusion from the disciples saying, well, wasn't that wrong, Lord? Wasn't that this? Everybody knew, oh yeah, no, that's, that's common practice. If you find it, it is yours. So uh, uh, legally, according to Jewish law, there is no issue there. Now, let's talk about ethically. Okay, just because something's legal doesn't mean it's right, right? Okay. Did he do the ethical thing? Well, if he was unethical, here's the argument. He would have taken the treasure. Instead, he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field so he has uh, the possession of the treasure when he pulls it out. Or he could have, uh, again, as a commentator points out, he could have even taken part of the treasure and used it to buy the field and kind of been half right, half wrong, right? In there, right? He could have done all this. He did the ethical and legal thing according to the eyes of the law and according to everything that was there. And uh, the other point was he was not defrauding the landowner, because it wasn't the landowner's money that was hidden. If it was, the landowner would have dug it up before he sold the property. 
So it was hidden there before him or even before the next person. One commentator mentions that, uh, that that land would have been plowed, obviously, for a while, if we're getting technical here. And so this is probably something hidden maybe by the Amorites. I mean, years before the land even belonged to anyone. And so what this man does is he discovers it. Uh, he follows Jewish law. He does the right thing by going and selling everything he owns so he can acquire the property and claim the treasure. And so, uh, yeah, so no moral, ethical, or legal problem there. But let's look at what he does. That's the find. He finds his treasure. And let's look at what it costs him. It says, when he finds this, there's great joy. Now, I know that if anyone here were to like say win the lottery, okay? You can imagine, I don't know what, one, why you're playing the lottery. It's not a wise thing to do. You'll lose a lot of money. Uh, but let's say you were to win the lottery. You can imagine just the, the instant joy of like, what are the odds of this, right? Well, in this day and age, people weren't finding a lot of buried treasure. We don't have hardly any records of this. It's not like everybody was finding buried treasure on their property and there was a treasure rush, like a gold rush, and people were digging up everywhere. It just was kind of random and rare. This is a, a once in a lifetime type of a thing, type of, type of event. And so he finds this, he realizes the worth, and he decides to go and pay a great price, all that he has. Now, all he was buying was a piece of property, and so he probably wasn't the richest person in the world, probably was quite poor, actually. But everything he owned, he gave up to take possession of this property, and he knew that whatever price the property was, it was gonna be a deal because there's buried treasure on it. And he'd already seen it and it was gonna be his. And so uh, the clarification here is that he goes and discovers this and he takes hold and possession of it. And uh, the value is he's getting the kingdom, but here's the clarification. We know now, that, I mean, obviously through scripture, we know that we cannot ever purchase or buy our salvation or any part of the kingdom of heaven because it's not for sale. So what is this talking about? What is he talking about here? Uh, we know that we can't help or assist God in any way. Some religions teach that, yes, Jesus pays for part of it, but you have to make you know, kind of monthly payments or daily payments, whatever it is, right? Bible teaches you can't pay for any of it. It is a gift. It is a free gift that is given to you. And so here is the point. The kingdom of heaven is of such value that it is worth everything you have. Everything you have. You can't purchase it, it was given to you. But it's worth everything. If you were to give everything, it would be a deal. You'd be making money as it were on the deal. Uh, one writer said, uh, you know, we can't pay anything for it, obviously. We can't earn it. But once we found it, we're willing to give up everything to possess it. To possess it. What's going on here? Uh, we're talking about uh, really the cost of discipleship. What it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. You don't pay for your salvation. Salvation doesn't cost you a cent. You turn in repentance. You trust in faith and what Christ has already done in his completed work. So it doesn't cost anything for salvation, but it may cost you here on this earth. 
It may cost you in your relationships. It may cost you uh, in your, your, who knows what, in, in, you might get persecuted. That's not paying for your salvation. That's a result of being a Christian. Okay, so there's a cost involved, but it's not earning your salvation. You have to understand the difference there, okay? Um, Luke 14, 25 through 33, Jesus explains the cost of following him. He says, if you want to follow me, if you wanna be a Christian, you wanna be my disciple, let me just tell you something. You can't love your family more than me. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. He says, uh, you can't even love your own life more than me. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Now, even if you were to give your life, you couldn't earn your salvation, right? That's not what he's saying. But he's saying that if you love your life more than you love me, you don't understand the worth. You don't understand the value of what this is. That's then become an idol. That's keeping you from coming to me. He goes on and he says, uh, you have to carry your cross, pick up your cross and follow me or you're not worthy enough to be my disciple or you can't be my disciple. He explains that finally, we have this verse here in verse 33. He says, uh, count the cost. Realize what it's going to cost to be my disciple. You're not gonna earn heaven, but it's gonna cost you here on this earth. As a result of being saved, you're gonna be persecuted. There's gonna be consequences here on this earth. Okay, so he says, count the cost. Realize it. Don't just come thinking everything's gonna be honky-dory. It may cost you friendships. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you your life. He says, and that, that's what it takes. Be my disciple. You just can't hold that back. You come to me. I give you salvation. And he says this. After he tells him to count the cost, he says, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's exactly what the point of this parable is talking about, okay? So the idea isn't that uh, we're earning our salvation. The idea is that it is so valuable. It is worth all that we have. I'll give you some examples biblically of, of what happened here. We had the rich young ruler. He came up to Jesus, right? Said, Jesus, I wanna follow you, okay? And Jesus uh, talks with him. You know the exchange. He says, you know, uh, why do you call me good, number one? He called Jesus a good teacher. He said, only God's good. And the, the rich young ruler goes on and he says, look, I've been good too. I followed all the law. I followed the 10 commandments. There's no problems with me. Jesus said, okay, fine. If you've followed the law perfectly, which no one can do, if you're saying that, you don't need a savior. And so he looks at him and goes, well, there's one thing you lack then. Just sell everything you own and come follow me. And the man turned and walked away sad. Why? Because you can't serve God in money. That's what Jesus says. Is money evil? No, it's neutral. But if it's your God, then it's gotta go. That's just what it is. You are following Christ. It's that simple. Someone else comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. I am ready to be your disciple. And Jesus says, just wanna let you know Foxes have holes, or foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to even sleep. 
realize what the cost is going to be for this free salvation that we're given. Realize that there's gonna be a result of being saved that is going to cost you on this earth. It's called being a disciple. It's called walking with Jesus. Another one comes to him and says, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me bury my father first. And it wasn't that there was a funeral that just took place. It was that he was saying, let my you know, dad, he's older, let him pass, let me handle the estate, let me deal with this, then I'll follow you. He says, nope, follow me, leave now and come to me now. You know the story, Luke 14, 18 records the man who bought a field and gives that example. I just bought a piece of land or I would follow you. The person that's in verse 19 that says, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I wanna test them out. Today it'd be like, you know, I just bought a new car, a new tractor. I gotta drive that thing. He's saying, you can't be my disciple then. And then verse 20, someone says, I just got married. Follow him, no excuse, follow him. The main point of this is that it may cost you everything you have to follow Christ. Someone may look at your life and go, wow, you've given a lot. And you can say, I did not pay for my salvation. This is not a result of earning it. This is a result of having been given it. This is what a saved person looks like. The question is asked, well, if you have to maybe leave your family, if you have to maybe uh, end a relationship that's not right and holding you back from the Lord, if you have to uh, leave a job, if you have to leave a career, if you have to leave your dreams, whatever you have to leave, this parable is showing you it's worth it. It's worth it. The kingdom of heaven is worth it. Do you realize the value? So you sell everything you have, you buy this piece of land and you get immense treasure. Of course, it's worth it. Do you realize that? We've been given this gift and we have this idea sometimes that we can hold on to this gift and we can continue doing whatever we wanna do and we can put this gift in our pocket. And we, we call that being a follower of Christ. I'm a Christian, I follow Christ. He leads and guides my life. I have sold out for him. Okay, so then we get confronted with a Bible passage. In the relationship we're in, the fiance we're with, we realize that's not a godly relationship. I've got to call it off. You can't have both. Is that so you can earn your salvation? No, you're a follower of Christ. Is it worth that to you? You know, others may not see the value here in this. Remember, the parable says it's hidden. This is a hidden treasure. But one day, everything will be revealed and the value will be made known It'll be on judgment day. There's a verse that says, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? On that day, what will a person give to escape the, the punishment they deserve for eternity? Everything. What fool would hold on to something? 
on judgment day, if that's all it took is to say, okay, I'll give you everything now. So if we know it's worth it then, why is it not worth it now? Which still couldn't earn it either way. So on judgment day, if you get everything you had, that wouldn't solve your sins. It's still not enough. But we've been offered grace through Christ. We've been offered the free gift of salvation. Do you realize the worth of that? And will you grab hold of it? And are you willing to give anything to receive it? Because whatever is holding you back from Christ, that thing is not worth it. It's not worth it. And it feels like it is worth it. The careers, the dreams, but I always wanted to be a fill in the blank. But ever since I was a young child, I dreamed of fill in the blank. Christ is saying, leave it, abandon it, surrender it to me. And maybe, maybe he'll lead you that direction for his good purposes. Maybe he won't, but you've got to surrender it. It's called being a disciple. Now, the other thing that's interesting in here is that this man wasn't looking for treasure. He stumbles upon it and there's joy. And many times there are people, most times I would say, who aren't looking for salvation. They're not looking for Christ. Uh, and somehow they stumble across the gospel. You're sitting across from someone at the cafe. You're uh, on a bus and someone starts sharing the gospel with you. Uh, you're at a street corner and someone gives you a gospel track. You just open it up, you read it. You're confronted with the truth. You see the value, eternal life staring you right in the face. Maybe you weren't planning on it, but the Bible says today is a day of salvation. And so now that you know, there's a choice to make. And this man made his choice. He counted the cost and he said, it's worth everything I own and I freely give it. And I am making out on the deal. I'm the winner here. The other one's getting whatever he wanted for the land, but I'm getting it. The kingdom of heaven is not only worth it, it also far surpasses it, whatever it is. It's beyond it. It's a deal. This man paid for the field and he got the treasure and the field, right? Okay, so now this is where some commentators uh, have said that there might be alternative um, things this parable might be pointing out. And so uh, good godly men have suggested since Jesus didn't explain this for us that you know there's another possibility here. And so I'm gonna share that with you. Some have suggested that uh, that the person who's buying the land might be Christ himself. And that we're the pearl, a great price, or rather we're the hidden treasure that he finds and he leaves heaven and he comes down to earth to purchase us. Now what makes sense about that is that Christ did purchase us, we could not pay for ourselves, uh, and that he did leave his glory in heaven. And so, and they point out, uh, that maybe it's Israel as another option. Maybe it's God purchasing back Israel. He's called Israel before his treasure. And so uh, that is an option as well. But let me tell you why uh, it seems to point the other direction for those two things. 
Here's why. The main point is the worth and the value, okay? So if it's Christ finding us and leaving everything for us, but ending up with the better deal, that seems a little far-fetched, right? (laughs) Don't worry, I just died on the cross. I took the sins of the world on me, but it was nothing. It seems like we're the ones that worked out a little bit better in that deal you think about it. And so, uh, so remember, nothing you give up for the Lord is ever in vain, okay? So as a disciple in Christ, you will be confronted in God's word uh, with things in your life that aren't matching up or lining up to scripture. So what do you do? You let them go, all right? Uh, if it's a matter of, well, I really want this thing, it's, well, do you want Christ? If you're a disciple of Christ, Christ is supreme in your life. You're coming after him. Uh, and uh, I wanna encourage you tonight that if there is something, uh, even right now, that, you're, that God's laying on your heart and you're, you're thinking, yeah, but what if, I, what if I surrender that and later I'm like a fool because I didn't really have to or you know, maybe, is it gonna be worth it? Yes, nothing you ever surrender to the Lord is ever in vain. Store up your treasure in heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. And anything that is keeping you from receiving his kingdom has to go, has to go. You've gotta choose him. You've gotta come to him. And so I think of the response earlier in Matthew, verse four, where he's walking on the beach, the Sea of Galilee, and he sees James and John, and they're in the boat with their dad and they're working their job, their livelihood. And he looks at him and he goes, follow me. And the verse says, they leave their dad in the boat and they follow Jesus. Don't let your dad get between you and Jesus. Don't let your job get between you and Jesus. Matthew, who wrote Matthew uh, in, in chapter nine, verses nine through 13, says he was doing his job as a tax collector. Maybe it was the busy time of year. I'm sure they had him then. And so he's sitting there, Jesus walks by and goes, follow me. Matthew gets up. He leaves his job and follows Christ. That's it. It's what he does. That's what the Lord is talking about here. All right, second parable, the pearl of great price. Let's look at that. Verses 45 through 46, I'll read that to you. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So the same two points are gonna apply, the find and the cost. So it starts out with saying again. So we're talking about a similar parable to illustrate the same theme, but with maybe a little bit different uh, specific uh, emphasis. So the same theme is the value of the kingdom of heaven. It has immense value, worth more than anything you could offer. You can't purchase it, but this is what it's worth. So of course, when you're challenged with something, you're gonna say, oh, kingdom of heaven's worth it. Absolutely, I'll let that go. Now, here's the difference in this parable. Instead of a man kind of in a field that stumbles upon a treasure, this man is looking for treasure. He's looking for a fine pearl. It says fine pearls, plural. He's a merchant. He's uh, searching for good deals. He's searching for uh, something of great value. And he probably has a lot of money. 
Here's some history on pearls, just so you know. Uh, today, pearls, you might think that they're you know, no big deal or they're a little expensive, but let me take you back 2,000 years, 4,000 years. Let's talk about pearls. Pearls have been called the queen of all gems. It's said very easily they were the first of all gems. How were they found? Probably discovered when they were eating oysters for food. Somebody finds a pearl and look at this. And the other oysters don't have that. What is that? That's unique. That's something important. And so uh, they would start collecting them. Historians have estimated that 2,000 years before Christ, they were actively looking for pearls and they were selling those uh, to kings and princes and rich people all over the world. Now, here's the interesting part. How do you think they got them? They didn't have scuba gear back then. They didn't have motorboats. They didn't have submarines. They had to hold their breath and go underwater without goggles. Didn't have those either. Up to 100 feet. They're holding their breath, they're holding their breath. They get to the bottom, they probably can't see very well, so they're just feeling. They're feeling around, they're feeling for the oysters. And they grab some. Uh, somewhere around the Middle Ages, they found a little net that they would wear and it was like a little basket and they would, they would put the oysters in there and try to get as many as they could before they had to go up. You can imagine it's dangerous. They didn't know anything about the bends or or air in, in the blood supply or anything like, they didn't know any of that. There were sharks, there was, I mean, they had no idea. This was deadly work, which made these extremely valuable, extremely valuable. In fact, they were still doing it that way until 1893, when a Japanese entrepreneur discovered that you could make cultured uh, pearls. And it wasn't until the early 1900s that they actually had a little farm and started making cultured pearls. 1893, thousands of years they're doing this, risking their life. So pearls were like the diamonds nowadays. They were the first jewel. They were the most precious thing. To give you an idea, if they found 2,000 oysters, how many pearls do you think they'd find in those? Three to four three to four quality pearls, pearls that could be sold. Three to four out of 2,000. That's how valuable they were. Uh, they discovered on a sarcophagus, not esophagus, but on a sarcophagus, uh, that's like a, a casket, okay? A Persian princess from 420 BC before Christ uh, had pearls in her sarcophagus, not in her esophagus. That's not how she died, okay? <laughs> she had pearls in there. Uh, they talked about Cleopatra. She was said, this is legend, we don't know if this is true, but at least the idea was circulating around. It was said that she took pearls and ground them up and put them in her wine glass so that she could serve Mark Anthony the most expensive dinner in history. Pearls were a big deal. So now this guy is looking for the ultimate pearl. He's looking for fine pearls. I'm not just talking about any pearls. I want, you know, the, the one out of 100, which is what, one out of 20,000 or something like that, oysters. I, I want the good one. So 
He's going out and he's pursuing. This is different than stumbling upon it. He's searching and looking. And there's some people out there uh, who do kind of search and look for spirituality or maybe religion, uh, spiritual roots. They, they're kind of looking for, they know something's wrong. They're not necessarily looking for Christ or the gospel, but they're headed kind of in a general direction knowing that, the, the, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's a spiritual realm out there. They wanna find it out and they, in their research, stumble across the gospel. And they look at this amongst other religions and go, wait a minute, Christ said he is the son of God, not uh, one of many gods, polytheism. He is the infinite and all powerful God, the all existent God. He's saying he's him and he's saying the way to be saved is by turning to him, only he could pay the price? Oh, that's not like anything else I've found. Wait a minute. Eternal life, etern this, is this is incredible. This is a pearl of great price. And so what does he do? Well, presumably he might even have some pearls of his own that were lesser quality. He sells all of it and he was rich. You gotta be rich to be buying pearls, but he gives it all up for one pearl of great price. He sold everything he had and he considers it a fair trade. Everything he owns, he goes, oh, it's worth it. It's worth it. There is none like this. And now reading this, I can't think of, I can't help but think in this example that as Jesus is, is telling this to his disciples and uh, possibly he was even openly sharing this on the beach there too. This could have been back when he was in the house, but that he's thinking of the Jews. The Jews had some riches. They had some pearls. They had the temple. They had the law. They had the patriarchs. They had tradition. They were kind of looking for the Messiah, not the, you know, by the time it got to Jesus, they weren't really looking. There was a few who were looking for the Messiah, Jesus' disciples. The rest of them were kind of looking, but they were looking for kind of one they had invented in their own mind. Okay, so when Jesus appeared, they were shocked. They're like, well, this is two different Messiahs. The one in my mind is completely different than who you are. The one in my mind esteems me, makes me number one and comes and tells me, wow, what a good servant you are. And look how rich you've become. All these wonderful things, right? But here's Jesus standing with eternal life and he's offering it to them. He's offering it to them. And they're making these excuses. Oh, I gotta bury my dad. Oh, I bought, I test out my oxen. You know, new oxen, gotta test them out. Uh, you know, I can't, I just got married. And he's going, are you kidding me? Do you realize the value? If you realize the value, you would never say any of those things. And Jesus explains to them, don't you realize that there is someone here with something here that is greater than all you have? Even in Judaism, one chapter earlier in in uh, Matthew 12, verse six, they get mad at Jesus, the religious leaders. And 
They say, Jesus, you're breaking the Sabbath because they had set up all these traditions and rules on top of God's rules and said, you are breaking their tradition. You're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus says, no, I'm not. And by the way, if you knew who I was, that I created the Sabbath, you probably wouldn't have condemned the innocent. And he said, and you have all these rules, and you talk about the temple, don't you realize that something greater than the temple is here? You guys, you have this, you have good stuff, but if it's just the stuff and it's not me, don't you realize the value? Verse 41, he goes down after they condemn him again and they reject him again. And he says, the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and they're gonna stand up and condemn you because they repented them and you're not repenting. Don't you realize that something greater than Jonah is here? Don't you realize that? See, they were safe in their Jewish tradition. They, they made it a system of works instead of seeing it as pointing to God through faith every time. Hebrews 11 makes that clear, that everyone in the Old Testament who was ever called righteous was made righteous by faith, not by their works. But they had stumbled over the stumbling block thinking, oh no, it's by our works. We've got Jonah, Abraham's our father. We have all this and Christ is saying, don't you realize something more valuable than Jonah is here? He says, the queen of the South, she came just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Don't you realize something greater than Solomon is here? Verse 42, Paul was a Jew of Jews. And he says this in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. He gives this list of qualifications of who he was. He says, I was a Jew of Jews. Here's where I came from. Here's what I did. As far as the physical law outwardly, I was blameless. I, did, I had everything right. I was a Jew of Jews. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. That is the point of these parables. The kingdom of heaven is of immense value. It's given as a gift. You can't earn it, but it is worth all you have all you have. So put nothing before it, put nothing before Jesus the King, but make him preeminent in your life. What Jesus was asking of them was leave that and follow me. Let's pray. Lord, you are so gracious that you would give us this immense treasure that we could never earn and never make payments on is given completely as a gift. Lord, we just take a moment and realize the preciousness of this gospel that we have, the preciousness of salvation, but more importantly, the preciousness of you, who we get, we get you. Nothing can compare with that. Lord, every single one of us, including myself, 
Know what it's like to get sidetracked and distracted by the things of this world. God, help us to remember what the true riches are, the true value is, and the things that are getting in the way right now. God, reveal it to us. Give us the strength to remember you've called us to discipleship, to follow you. You make us worthy by forgiving our sins, sealing us with your Holy Spirit. And he said, I know my sheep, they'll follow me. God, we wanna follow you truly. Weed out the things in our life, God, that are getting between us and you. Lord, for those of you, for those here who have not come to you yet, maybe they stumbled into hearing your gospel. Maybe they've been searching for something and have been presented with this. Lord, we pray that nothing would hold them back, that they would see through your word the vast riches that Paul talks about, that nothing else compares to knowing you, being right with you, being one of yours, being called a child of God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.